precedence over training. The law of 1987 builds an atypical educational model. The new curriculum is an example of indoctrination of the education system in our party. The most significant change in the school curriculum was the textbooks complete revision and the meticulous selection of academic knowledge. The Islamization consists of adapting academic subjects to the rules and values of Shia. Since 1980, many researchers showed the Islamic ideological essence of Iranian curriculum. I have worked myself about Iranian curriculum between 1980 and 2000. But today I want to talk to you about the last study concentrated mainly on the other's place and image in the Iranian curriculum. This study proposed by Freedom House is based on three types of statistical and qualitative analysis of 95 school textbooks publishing in last year, covering all subjects from grades 1 to 11, overall 11,000 pages and 3,115 images. What is defined in this study? First of all, if I want to compare this study with the previous researchers since 1980, I found that all researchers have a common point each, which is religious ideological framework. Religion is the ideological foundation of the textbooks. The book, story, society, and man are received, viewed, and interpreted through a religious ideology. The ideology of the curriculum uses Shia as the rule of law, social norms, individual behavior, and as a tool to control society. This Islamic order in textbooks includes private and public space. Even the most intimate and personal issues are directed to people. Islam is pivotal. Islam is pivotal. Therefore, everything else is secondary or other in these textbooks. Promoting a critical mind is not allowed. In fact, the curriculum imposes a unilateralist point of view. The curriculum promotes tradition as opposed to modernity. Shia is presented as the only truth of human history. This does not invalidate modernization. In fact, technologies and science are depicted and discussed in most of the textbooks. However, the essence of modernity, which includes democracy, individual autonomy, human rights, 
and liberty are absent. This ideological threat inevitably creates a discourse of intolerance and discrimination against the other. Our study worked about three kinds of discrimination. Gender discrimination, discrimination and intolerance toward ethnic and religious minorities, outlook toward neighboring and other countries. The gender discrimination is the most important discrimination. Men and women are not formally equal in textbooks. Men and women are assigned gender roles in their social and private lives. Men and women are presented as two different social individuals who complement, who complement, sorry, who complement one another and have specific gender roles. Men are clearly the superior sex and women are the second sex. Women are not purely traditional and limited to the house and the family life, but they have not taken on the characteristics of the emancipated women of modern society. In other words, women are semi-social, they can obtain educational degree, have a limited presence in the labor market, vote and participate in social activities. But concurrently, they continue to be defined in relation with maternal and family duties. According to the statistic, only 7% of well-known personalities in textbooks such as poets, scientists, politicians, writers are women. The big majority of the women pictures are anonymous people, such as a mother, sister, housewife, teacher, or nurse. The analysis of pictures demonstrated the important difference between men and women. In total, women only appear in 37% of the pictures and the most of them are under 18 years. In 82% of all the images, men and women are not shown in the same picture. This data indicates clearly that masculine and feminine spaces are frequently separated. In fact, we see two different words through the pictures and text, female universe and male universe. The female's presence prevails within the family and education context. This information clearly demonstrated the social roles that are delineated for men and women in the culture of textbooks. Ethnic and religious minorities. A better understanding of the ethnic and religious minorities is achievable through the complicated construction of three types of identity, national, Islamic, and local. The Islamic and national identity occupied the major place and local identity is marginal. The curriculum 
occasionally discuss about other religions and ethnic minorities. However, the overall themes of the textbooks underscore sheet sheer ideology. Even though Iran's educational system allows recognized religious minorities to have their own religion book in the classroom, the Shia religion dominated all the textbooks, undermining other religions. The rhetoric of the textbooks referred to Iranian people as Muslim and Shia people of Iran, and non-Muslims are not existing around. Three religious minorities categories can be identified. Sunni, recognized monotheistic religion, Zoroastrian, Jews, and Christian, and the, the, the hidden religions such as Baha'i or the social group as atheists. The approach of the textbooks is open and friendly toward these groups of recognized religious minorities. However, the tone used in the textbooks regarding the Jewish people is different. The biography and the story of Moses are recited in many of the textbooks. What makes the case of the Jews stand out in the repetition of harsh criticism toward Israel, a Jewish state? Those who do not fit into this official religious classification are true to be suffering from a form of deviance. No believers, atheists, agnostics, as well as for all our unrecognized religion and sects such as Baha'is. Although the topic of ethnic minority is discussed only marginally such as the local identities is present in one, in one form or another. There exists a clear preliminary effort to recognize Iran's ethnic realities. The attitude toward the various minorities is twofold. In the first case of some minorities, the textbooks set aside cultural monies in inconsistent way and turn to cultural diversity. In the second case, this marginal approach does not mean that the curriculum officially recognizes the culture of the various minorities. Overall, no much space is dedicated to cover the culture, language, and minority issues. The main approach for defining the words is based on the religious difference and the religious belonging. Within this framework, the world is divided mainly into the two categories of Islamic and non-Islamic countries. In the historical and geopolitical context, this categorization is repeated through the entire textbooks. On this basis, the textbooks see the Islamic Republic as a part of the family of Islamic countries, which are 
culturally and geopolitically different from the Western civilization. Iran's relation with the West during the last two centuries in the political and economic dimensions, as well as in terms of civilization, occupies an important place in the textbooks. The West colonial policy before and after the revolution of 1979 is criticized constantly. From the political standpoint, the discourse of the textbooks can be considered anti-Western. The foreigner or enemies are usually mentioned toward the Western countries, US in particular. When it comes to attitude toward the West, Israel as absolute evil and the enemy of the Muslims occupies an important place. The textbooks present the Israel-Palestinian conflict as the single most important issue of Islamic countries and the region. Palestine is considered as the ground for unity and linkage among Muslims. As conclusion, I want to insist on four points. Perceiving the world, history, and human beings from the perspective of a religious doctrine will lead to reductionism, bias, and exclusion. This discourse accepts certain people as insider, tolerates some group, and reject others. In this sense, this reductionist outlook produces the, interpret the interpretive mechanism based on discrimination. In this discourse, the self and other have a structural presence. The existence of discriminatory attitudes is not accidental or sporadic, but continuous and systematic. In the discourse of the textbooks, being born a woman means having a different statue as a man. Being born a Sunni means a different status than a Shia. The second point is that its discriminating viewpoint is recognized religiously and politically. The textbooks legitimize and justify this discriminatory viewpoint of gender, identity, and religion, thus forcing the reader to a form of institutionalized discrimination. The third point, individuals are not equal, formally equal, and in the hierarchy of the value are defined and judged based on gender, gender ethnic, background, religion. The discourse of the textbooks has not been written with the concept of equality of all human beings, as enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The term based on the clear and official negation, negation of the equality of human beings created different positions for the various people in society. Some individuals are born first-class citizens, 
due to their identity, gender, and way of thinking, while, other, while others become second and third class citizens. The last point, an important question that arises from this study, is the hierarchy among, hierarchy among the various forms of discrimination. Answering this question is problematic because the form, meaning, and degrees of discrimination are not the same. Gender discrimination is the most important based on quantity. However, the discrimination that exists about Hittans or Baha'is is more intense. Nevertheless, the important point of concentrated on is the concurrent presence of this form of discrimination toward various social groups. When certain individuals suffer two or three forms of discrimination at once, they will face a multilateral discrimination. A Sunni Kurdish woman or a Baha'i Kurdish woman must tolerate three forms of discrimination all at once, gender, ethnic, and religious. It is in this way that a discourse that considers itself moral and spiritual is turned paradoxically into a discriminatory rhetoric that separates and divides human beings from one another. The problem of the Iranian educational system is the same as all the religious schools that view the world ego-centrally. Thank you very much. somebody who's worked in the human rights business, um, both for governments, uh, for international organizations, and for NGOs, and to share with you some of my thoughts about why Iran is a difficult country to engage on the subject of human rights. For an NGO, I run a small organization called the Iran Human Rights Documentation Center that's based here in New Haven that works exclusively on human rights issues inside Iran, and we have as our mission statement uh, the mission of promoting a culture of human rights inside Iran, uh, something of a tall order perhaps. Um, and I'm going to try and explain to you uh, some of the challenges that we face, uh, some of the ways that we've tried to overcome those challenges. There is a public information film doing the rounds at the moment inside Iran. Uh, published by the Ministry of uh, Intelligence and Security um, about the dangers of foreign NGOs. And it opens with a great scene in a White House bunker deep below the White House where John McCain, George Soros, I'm not quite sure why John McCain, but maybe they know something we don't. Um, John McCain, George Soros, a representative of the CIA, 
uh, are all gathering to discuss how they will overthrow the Islamic Republic. And in a sort of a free-ranging discussion, they decide that human rights and a velvet revolution is the way to go. Cut to the streets of Tehran. Up until this point, it's all been computer-generated images. Now we have real-world people and a small family in Tehran, uh, a young boy who's been suckered in by these, these uh, alluring Western promises of human rights, is packing a pistol, he's got a pistol hidden in his, his drawer, and he puts it in his uh, uh, work bag, and his loving sister demurely spots the pistol and takes uh, immediate action going to the local security office. Um, she tells the very kind gentleman from the security services that she's concerned about her brother, and he shares her concern. Uh, and together they talk about the brother, and an intervention is called for. And the nice gentleman from the security services with a couple of his very gentle and kind colleagues go and arrest the brother in such a manner that even the mother is grateful for their understanding at this trying time. This narrative is actually very important because this is what the Iranian government has done. What it has tried to do is paint a certain picture of human rights as essentially a political tool. It, it's kind of a narrative they've used in a variety of different theaters before. The narrative they use to criminalize the Baha'is is that the Baha'is, it's not a faith, it's not a religion, it's a criminal activity, it's a political thing. Much the same idea here with human rights. We're not talking about anything universal or generic. We're talking about a political truth. Nothing more, nothing less. And that creates a bit of a problem for people who find these important concepts and want to do something about it. So if you are operating inside Iran, and goodness knows there are many people who know much better than I the circumstances inside Iran today, you have a number of obstacles that you face. First, the activity that you want to engage in itself is essentially criminal. Worse than that, it borders on treason. So it's dangerous to be out there organizing. We've talked a little bit on previous panels about self-censorship and how the state has been very clever at setting boundaries that people internalize and adopt. Well, the people who do want to promote human rights in Iran, and I think it's fair to say there are many of them, um, they face first a barrier of internal self-censorship. What if I do stand up? What happens? Um, what happens to my family? What is that going to say about me as a person? The next barrier they have is how I get together with other people. Um, well, I can't go to meetings. That's just going to attract attention. I can't write articles in the newspapers. Many of them have been closed down. And certainly now it would just be asking for trouble. Um, I can't really put posters up. That's going to get me into trouble. Um, I can't go to concerts. There's just not a lot of social space or public space in which to organize. What's happened is that the internet has, to a degree, um, an ERTSAT social space where people can share information and to a degree organized. We've had some nice examples recently of what might be called viral pro protests where people, I think the technical term is swarming, they'll share information on the internet uh, and a happening will come together, a manifestation, a, a little demonstration, a small group of people will hold a public demonstration for 10 or 15 minutes uh, before the police arrive. Um, about a year ago, we have some nice pictures of it in the office, uh, people held banners up around the, um, the Freedom Monument on the road from the airport into Tehran. They circled it with banners saying things like freedom, justice, and so forth. And that's the sort of activity that can be organized on the internet. But of course, it's very bitty. Um, very difficult, of course, also. The internet is not a clandestine um, entity. It, it's a notice board. So if you are posting things on the internet, people are going to get to hear about it and know about it. 
but it is at least some form of social space that people can organize and share information in. Um, problem is where you get your information from. The internet is somewhat notoriously unreliable. So we do have the situation where there's social space and there's information available in that social space, but it's hard to assess the value of that information. From a Western perspective, we have a social space perhaps that we can appeal to, that we can reach out to people through. We can't put activists on the ground. Um, different organizations have tried to do that. The Open Society Institute is one of those, and their representative, somebody they worked with inside Tehran, was held um, in prison for a substantial period of time because of his association with SARS. There are no international NGOs with a meaningful presence on the ground inside Iran doing human rights work. There are some groups, Soros was one of them, that became involved in things like needle exchanges in the context of HIV prevention and drug abuse in prison. So there's some international cooperation on the ground, but usually it's with the authorities. And once, talking with a business hat on, you invest in a program, you become committed to it, and you're loathe to jeopardize that program. So the NGOs that are on the ground in Iran have given up a certain freedom of movement through the relationship that they've developed with the government. So it's difficult for them to be advocates for change. They have entered into a degree of a partnership. There's nothing wrong, I don't mean to suggest anything pejorative by that, but it's the reality of the price that they pay to operate in that space. For the rest of us, we have to figure out a way to try and help what's going on inside Iran from outside Iran in a way that we don't get anybody into trouble. Um, you know, if I hire somebody inside Iran to do some research, there's a good chance that somebody inside Iran will find out and that individual will get into trouble. So I have to find a way to engage this community in such a way that I don't put anybody's lives at risk, um, and at the same time I get a useful message across. Um, and this is where our organization has given a lot of thought to a, an approach that we think is quite successful. Um, we try to use both listservs and the internet as a way of disseminating information inside Iran. Um, we kind of think of it like a modern version of the Samzadat system. Those of you who remember the Cold War, people printing things in their basements, <coughs> underground printing presses. Well, in the electronic era, the, the, the internet's the new Samzadat system. There is a way to get information and share it. The problem we get back to is how do we trust that information? How do we make that, value, that information valuable? Something that people want to embrace and use? Because there's a lot of skepticism. And I'll come on to one of the reasons why there might be skepticism in a moment. But you know, people have internalized, certainly, this narrative, this Velvet Revolution narrative. Even if they're sympathetic to the cause of human rights, they are going to be, they're only human to be a little bit suspicious about these foreigners who suddenly turn up talking about it. So we have to find a way to overcome that. And the way we do it in my organization is we produce very detailed reports. Um, typically in the human rights business, the Amnesty Internationals, the Human Rights Watch, you don't footnote extensively. You protect your sources by not mentioning names. You keep things relatively vague. We've gone to the other extreme without, I should hasten to add, jeopardizing human beings. Um, we certainly do protect the identities of people who are still inside the country. What we do do, though, is we footnote everything extensively. We then also try and scan all the material that we use and footnote and make that available on the web through a database. So when people read our reports, and they can be 60 or 70 pages long, it's a bit like reading a PhD thesis. It's that researched, it's that <coughs> meticulous, it takes about a year from flash to bang from the moment we start the project 
for the moment that we finish it. Um, you can then go and second guess us. You could go online, you could look at the materials that we've used, you could look at the actual scanned image of the document, the letter, the leaflet that was left behind, the receipt that was given at the police station, and make your own minds up. Is it a forgery? Is it credible? Does it make sense? Do the dates match? You can do your own detective work. And we think that combination of detailed research and transparency and openness about who we are goes a long way to getting people into a comfort zone about sharing and, and, and accepting or being at least interested and engaged with the information that we're providing. Um, that said, there are still some problems here. The first is how do you fund something? Right? It costs my organization, which is not big. We have five staff members, five full-time staff members. It costs us about $650,000 to operate for a year. Right? It's a lot of money. And that money does not come from raffle drives, um, sponsored walks, um, or sadly, some very wealthy carpet selling sugar daddy. Um, you know, that money comes from the State Department primarily. And that's a real problem. You know, we get most of our money from government sources because when you want $650,000, there's actually a very small list of places in town that you can get it. You can get it from governments, you can get it from international organizations, or you can get it from foundations. Foundations, they're not going to give you much more than $150,000 unless you're very lucky, and your repeat business is going to be difficult. Governments really are the only source that can guarantee you large amounts of money year in, year out, so long as you deliver. So we take a lot of money from the State Department. This, of course, damages our credibility with the potential audience. Quite substantially. We're not remotely unaware of that fact. We would love to walk away from the State Department and get money from elsewhere. The problem is where? The obvious place to turn would be the Iranian community. Well, the Iranian community in the United States has very good reasons not to want to fund something like this. The first is a lot of them still travel to Iran. The last thing they want to do is jeopardize their ability to go back and visit relatives. Um, they're suspicious of the politics. They read the newspapers. They read the editorial page of the New York Times where people talk about um, different strategies to contain the threat of Iranian nuclear weapons. They saw John McCain singing bomb, 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 bomb Iran. And they do not want to give an excuse to any right-wing administration to start a conflict with Iran. So there's a real concern there. Um, members of the diaspora are very worried that this might be abused. So not only do we have to worry about a narrative coming inside Iran, we have to worry about a slightly different narrative that started outside Iran that also makes people a little bit worried to get involved with us. So here's the problem. We have funding issues, we have research and operational issues, all of which make what we do very difficult. As I said, the only real response that we can see to that is transparency. Um, we feel by like being very open about where we get our money from, being very open about how we do our research, uh, being very open the way that we distribute it and being open to all comers to contest and comment on that research, we can at least get a dialogue going. What we've been very, very careful about is not telling people where that dialogue should go. So we see our job really not so much perhaps as promoting human rights in Iran, but promoting a discussion about human rights in Iran. And that discussion is only meaningful if it's based on solid facts, facts that people can use to discuss from a person of knowledge. We've talked a little bit about the other on this panel, we'll talk some more. There are very distorted images about those other groups inside Iranian society. The Baha'is are a very good example, but we could talk about ethnic differences, we could talk about prejudices against different faiths as well. Obviously the main thrust of this conference is about anti-Semitism. 
So there's lots of different types of other and confusion and internal debate inside the country. The way that you can help that become a meaningful debate is by providing well-researched and useful information that informs that debate. And that's kind of what we try and do. We try and provide the tools for other people to undertake a degree of advocacy, of not advocacy, at least a conversation. Because a conversation about human rights has to start somewhere. Until you have that conversation, there's not much point talking that much about building civil society. People have first got to want civil society. They first got to want to see the value of civil society. And that starts with a simple conversation. And that conversation is meaningful when it starts with real information. Thank you very much.
come out as inaccurate is that um, they rarely, except for sporadic um, specialized human rights reports, use um, violence against Iranian um, as a relevant indicator to understand post-revolutionary Iran. Um, yet um, violence against civil society, censorship, and exclusion are major obstacles in the way of sustainable change. The inception of the Islamic Republic was associated with violence and discrimination, and as a result, millions of Iranians, including a majority of Muslims, uh, were eliminated um, from the country's political scene and administrative scene. Um, this, these circumstances are essential to understand um, politics in the Islamic Republic today. Um, the leaders of today Iran are aware of their lack of doctrinal religious legitimacy uh, for the, their political claims, and hence um, they systematically prevent um, or crush organized dissent. So I'm going to take you, if I may, uh, a little bit back um, to the inception of the Islamic Republic and give you some background information that would show you how um, the majority of Iranians have become vulnerable, vulnerable to discrimination, vulnerable to violence, and therefore um, absent. And uh, to also show you um, that the international community has a role to play. It not, not necessarily played it um, in 
groups, secular groups, as well as you know, leftist groups. We had a lot of extreme leftist political parties. Um, Grand Ayatollah Shayat Madari, an influential and prestigious cleric, opposed the concept of Velayat-e-Fakhi, which is the guardianship of the jurisprudence, the political absolute power Khomeini claimed for, his, for himself, and which is the cornerstone of the Islamic Republic's constitution, as the Grand Ayatollah Khoi, Omi, uh, Mahalati, Sadr al-Rohani, Zanjani, Tehrani, and I can go on. Um, Tabriz, the home of Shariat Madari, was the scene of serious unrest when hundreds of thousands of his Shariat Madari supporters demonstrated and for a brief moment took over the radio and television. Demonstrators were reacting to the fact that the state-controlled media were misinforming the public <coughs> on the Ayatollah's position. The crowd uh, was shot at and the Ayatollah was eventually accused of collaborating in a coup, defrocked and put under house arrest. <coughs> Over the years, many other clerics have been arrested, banned from seminaries, defrocked, and accused of harming the image of Islam by a special court that stands outside of the legal framework of the Islamic Republic. Um, the reports of the UN Special Rapporteur regularly <coughs> mention Sunni and Shia opposition clerics um, who are in, in jail, who are tortured, or who are just found dead. Um, you have Sunni clerics um, in the mid-1990s, you have um, Christian, Christian priests um, in the 80s and 90s, um, you have um, at some point in, uh, in 96, I think, um, there is an exchange between Iran and the UN Special Rapporteur, about 17 supporters of Ayatollah Shirazi, including his son, who were reportedly tortured um, and in prison. So, um, so this this is how um, the, this uh, Islamic Republic, uh, le you know, legislative body was created, and um, there is a, the violence that surrounded it is significant, and the violence was even more pronounced um, in the areas with ethnic and religious minorities, uh, where open rebellions broke out. Um, there were reports of widespread boycott of the referendum of the constitution in Azerbaijan, Kurdistan, Baluchistan, and the south of Iran. Serious fighting opposed the revolutionary guard to Kurdish political groups who opposed the inclusion of religion in the constitution and saw their demand for autonomy ignored. The regime's retaliation was brutal and in a few years the Kurdish resistance was eliminated at the cost of thousands of lives. In 7980, the Iranian civil society also fought against uh, the laws and regulations that they deemed undemocratic, discriminatory, and repressive. The powerful images of an Ayatollah waving at an impressive and mesmerized crowd erased the other reality, that of protesting judges, lawyers, intellectuals, rights activists, politicians, clerics, unwed women, and ordinary Iranians who were intimidated, imprisoned, beaten, stabbed in the streets, and in all circumstances accused of being monarchists or tools of foreign powers. <coughs> so this, what is this campaign of violence doing? Um, this campaign aims at eliminating dissent, and, but also, most importantly, concealing the existence and the nature of the internal challenge uh, faced by new leaders. If excluded as outsiders, all those who rejected um, all those who rejected the revolutionary leadership interpretation of Islam and fabricated fictitious and absurd links between dissidents and exterior enemies. 
I assume that you know this is some, this sounds familiar uh, today as well. Um, at the time, you know these links were absurd. Marxist-Leninist groups uh, were tried as American groupets um, in 1980-81. Um, the Baha'is were charged with spying for Israel, and many other dissidents were convicted of spying for Saddam Hussein. Those who undertook an armed resistance were simply charged with war on God, the prophet, and the representative of the 12th Imam. Uh, the new leadership crushed, again, at great human cost, all forms of organized dissent, and projected to the world the image of a people in complete harmony with their leaders. Um, and this is what most of us remember from those early years of the Islamic Republic. Um, a glance at the number of asylum seekers from Iran published over the years by the UNHCR is very revealing. By 1980, at the height of the anti-monarchist repression, there were 2,542 applicants from Iran. The number goes up as the Islamic Republic establishes itself, close to 7,000 in 1982, and 39,000 applicants in 2006. The number of applicants has varied over the years, but has always remained in the tens of thousands, with some peace over the years, 23,000 in 1990, 34 in 2000. These numbers include members of the former regime, dissidents, religious and ethnic minorities, adolescent boys fleeing from military <coughs> service, forced enrollment, uh, religious and secular women's rights advocates, student activists, homosexual and other Iranians. Uh, fleeing the new totalitarian state. These numbers, the highest in the region, in particular in time of peace, do not indicate an oil-rich country where the population and the rulers live in harmony. So who are these excluded Iranians? Um, the, the authorities refer to them as outsiders, in contrast with insiders the only people who are permitted to participate in the country's political life. Uh, the research of my foundation um, over the past few years um, has documented executions and other human rights violations committed by Iranian authorities. Um, the research shows that the majority of those executed following the revolution were practicing Muslims, Sunnis, Shias who rejected the revolutionary leadership's interpretation of Islam, Sufis, mystic Muslims, um, Iranians who believed in the separation of religion and state, um, gay Muslims, unlike what Mr. Ahmadinejad um, stressed uh, back a few months ago, and the list goes on. Um, victims also include members of political groups, some opposed to the Islamic Republic and some not, who were born in Muslim families and had become unbelievers or atheists. Thousands of sympathizers um, for one party, uh, which was not a very big party, the Pekar party, uh, Marxist party, 400 of their members were executed in a matter of a couple of years uh, for the Mujahideen, uh, Mujahideen organization, MEK or MKO, um, uh, as is known here. Um, Several thousands of their sympathizers and members were killed in 1988, in 1981, 82, 83, 84, and then um, those who were imprisoned um, and sentenced to prison terms for the MKO and the leftist groups um, 
4,000 at least of among them were hanged in secret in prisons in 1988. Uh, these people were hanged not because of what they did before being in prison, but for not recanting their faiths and not believing in the official orthodoxy. So what does that, this background do to um, ordinary Iranians, to people who are not insiders? Um, well, it exposes them to discrimination on political and religious grounds, but also it exposes them to violence. So the, the, the discrimination um, against in outsiders um, is on, happens on multi-level. You saw the, the references to school books, the education. Uh, so the, these are just symptomatic of a concept, concept of us and them. Um, in the few years following the revolution, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini and his supporters institutionalized discrimination on a wide and systematic scale. While law and practice favor Shia, Shia Muslim for participation in government, army, and educational establishment, a very stringent selection process screens all Iranians, including Shiite Muslims, and prevent access to employment by anyone whose past and present loyalty to the state's official ideology cannot be established. Uh, so constitutional guarantees, the Constitution guarantees a lot of freedom, uh, but these guarantees are complemented by vague phrases uh, that are subjecting them to the priorities of the official ideology. For example, um, the Constitution guarantees the formation of religious societies, provided that they do not violate the criteria of Islam or, or the basis of the Islamic Republic. Now, you know, what does that mean uh, for Mr. Khatani, Mr. Khamenei, Mr. Surush, you know, who is going to interpret that, um, uh, the criteria of Islam or the basis of the Islamic Republic? Um, it, the Constitution provides for sexual equality in conformity with Islamic criteria. Uh, Article 24 guarantees freedom of the press, except if detrimental to the fundamental, fundamental principles of Islam. Uh, so uh, these conditions provide the necessary legal basis for oppression and discrimination against non-Muslim and non-conforming Muslims, nullifying other constitutional guarantees of equal rights. So these laws were complemented by specific bodies created and um, and dedicated to the ideological purification of the public sphere. In 1980, a Bureau of the Cultural Revolution was created with the power to legislate outside the framework of the Constitution. The Bureau, uh, which was followed in 1983 by the Supreme Council of the Cultural Revolution, was charged with purging the universities, Islamicizing the curricula, and selecting efficient, committed, and vigilant professors. Soon after, um, ideological political bureaus were set up to test the ideological and moral suitability of those employed in the state and parastatal sectors. In 1981, the law for renewal of manpower resources in ministries and government offices provided the legal foundations for loyalty tests and allowed the expulsion of countless individuals from the civil service, including <coughs> houses of teachers and ministry employees. Um, the state-owned factories, the army, and the revolutionary guards, and other security forces were similarly purged and shaped. 
these ideological political bureaus continue in their functions today, including in the universities. Um, they are often used as a, uh, as a disciplinary mean by uh, universities, by, um, by the government authorities, uh, because they depend on people who are uh, subversive in factories, in ministries, in the university, and so they hold the sword over people's head, um, and letting them know that if they insist on their activism for human rights or whatever they are unhappy about, um, they can be thrown in jail, they can be in solitary confinement, they can be tortured. Um, so uh, there is, there is, these bodies uh, again are complemented by a selection process. A selection process that is called Guzinesh. I'm sorry to insist on all of these, um, maybe a little bit boring legislation and practices, but I think that um, as I've been in the US for many years now reading expert analysis and reading academic papers, I think that we have forgotten what is happening in Iran and how the Iranian dissidents are prevented from organizing and prevented from uh, getting in a position where they can think about organizing. Um, so these selection process, for example, are also overwhelming. They concern, uh, they're concerned um, teachers, they concern ministries, state organizations, firms and companies, uh, the National Company for Oil, the Organization for the Propagation and Rebuilding of Industry, the Red Crescent Society, municipalities, the social security organizations, firms and companies for for which all or a portion of their budget is secured by public funds. This, this discrimination uh, and selection process, the Guzinesh, is also uh, valid for political, um, for elections. So we hear about Iran having held 25 elections since 1979, and Iran boasts um, in a recent letter to the UN about uh, their performance in holding elections and in getting participation into these elections. But who can run? Um, to be registered on an electoral list as a candidate, a person must first sign a form affirming allegiance to the Constitution and the absolute guardianship of the Islamic um, jurisprudence. In effect, the candidate must make a professional face against democracy. Um, to accept the political guardianship of a theologian, a practicing Shia will be betraying his belief, as the concept is an innovation in Shiism a traditionally quietest religion. Once, once, if you sign this paper, in, in, if you sign this paper, then you are submitted to another selection process where your ideology and uh, your past affiliations and your opinion is, um, is verified and checked. And once you pass this, then um, the authorities in charge of verification are going to your hometown, talking to the mosque, the Basij, and to people who know you to see if you have participated in elections or you haven't. Uh, uh, you have participated in demonstrations, pro-government or not. If you have um, been heard criticizing uh, the constitution, if you have uh, your wife wears a chador. I mean, you know, it's a very, so this is the elections and these are the people who can run. So. I know that I don't have a lot of time, but um, I hope I can stretch a little bit. Um, 
um, and uh, abuse of your patients. Um, so what happens, so most of the Iranians cannot run for office. They can't really be in an important position in the administration. And, uh, and so they are more, much more exposed to violence and repression. So for example, in the Sunni areas, uh, Sunni inhabited areas, human rights, we have no access, of course, very little access, journalists have no access, but human rights reports um, tell, tell us that there is a very heavy military presence. We have documented um, several hundred cases of, um, of people, of Iranians uh, who have died in clashes with security forces. It's unclear what clashes mean. You know, sometimes people are armed, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they have drugs on them, but they always are called it clashes. But a lot of these deaths occurred in Baluchistan or Kurdistan, heavily inhabited by Sunnis. Um, the number of executions in these regions are also higher than elsewhere in Iran. Um, for the year 2007, we documented 447 executions reported by official media. And uh, a lot of these executions are, of course, you know, in these, uh, in these areas. Uh, I have a lot of examples um, to give you, but unfortunately time is short. Um, the security forces are much faster at shooting in those regions, and they're much less accountable when it comes to Sunni Muslims um, or to Sufis, for example. Um, there is much less accountability. Um, security forces who shoot um, uh, or uh, are guilty of hasty shootings uh, often walk free from their trial and or have to pay a minimal sum. Uh, the, the judiciary treats Iranians with a, in a very discriminatory manner so that um, you can be hanged, for example, for giving false estimates in the custom for carpet and then um, you can be let go free um, after having millions, uh, you know, uh, millions of uh, millions of dollars of um, state budget disappear, for example. So same thing. Um, the Shia clerics are very exposed. Those who don't agree with the ruling elite, Ayatollah Mantazari, who has um, impeccable revolutionary credentials, has been under house arrest in homes since 1980s. Mohsen Said Zadeh. Uh, was arrested and convicted for promoting an interpretation of Islam in which women and men have equal rights. Um, most recently, Ayatollah Burujebi, a Shia cleric who openly promoted separation of religion and state as a traditionalist, was imprisoned, reportedly tortured, and tried without access to an attorney. Uh, in June 2007, he was sentenced to death by the special court for perjury. And same thing, Iranian secularists are very vulnerable, those who get arrested uh, for pro-democracy activism um, are in a much more difficult situation than insiders. Um, insiders. So I'm going to conclude. Um, uh, I'm going to conclude by saying that um, we, uh, the, the aggressiveness of the Islamic Republic made, made us forget the civil society. I feel today, as in 1979-80, um, people who demonstrated for reform were not were not heard and were not given visibility. I feel um, that today uh, the obsession about the nuclear issue is doing the same thing again. Um, if uh, these Iranians have a space to be active uh, and in 
international community by giving, talking about them, talking about the laws that exclude them from the country's life, uh, will give them security and space. And if they have this space, then maybe uh, the challenge of Iran will be less of a challenge. Maybe they will have a positive impact in bringing about change. But to do that, they need the international community, they need the academia, they need the civil society to give them visibility and support them. Um, 
I'm going to hand over to somebody else because I, I, there's tons of hands of people who want to, to get in on this. But I'd make a couple of observations. Um, the diaspora is a great way in. Um, there's a lot of communication for people who live inside Iran and, and have family outside, people who come and study here and go back. Uh, that's a great way for ideas to spread. Um, there has been some international support. The Nobel Prize, obviously, is a, is a marvelous yeah. example of that. Um, I think there is a nervousness on the part of people inside Iran to, 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 to get painted with somebody else's cults. One sees that with, with Shirin Abadi or, or uh, Akbar Ganji. They're, they're very keen to avoid being pigeonholed uh, as, as being in the Western camp. Um, but they're still out there and they're talking. Uh, they may be within a constrained space, but it, it is happening. And I think there are some forums for Western support. People are supported when they come out. But let me hand over to people who know this much better than I am. I don't know about that. I think the first uh, observation, the first difference um, between uh, Iran and the Soviet Union is the fact that um, revolutionaries in Iran are the first generation. In the Soviet Union, they were not the first generation. So the stakes are much higher.
have to study all of the dimension of Iran. Not only, I say that uh, the education system of Iran is not uh, anti-modernization. The education of Iran is anti-modernity, modernity, and not modernization. The educational system of Iran accepts the technology, the science, but not the modernity, democracy, human rights. This is the problem. Exactly at China. In China, we have the same thing. You, have, you don't have the human rights. You have a, a very good technology. This is the, the paradox that they are Iran or China.